gospel lesson, which also will serve as our sermon text today, comes from Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Let me just remind you, this is God's word to us. It's given to us because he loves us. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the, of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? When then, what then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the gospel of our Lord. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I guess, um, We started a new sermon series that uh, we have titled, Why Church, Why Now? Why Church, Why Now? We have been thinking through the phenomenon that has happened in the last 25 years or so that has been titled, The Great De-Churching, where 40 million Christians, 40 million church-going believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, stopped going to church. And that 16% of the American population has been the greatest shift in any category of religion in American history. More folks have left the church in the last 25 years than how many came into the church in the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and all of Billy Graham's crusades combined. And this is staggering. And we have been asking the question, why? Why have they left? Well, there are lots of reasons to leave. Have a good bagel and watch NFL Countdown on Sunday morning, um, perhaps. Uh, But there is really only one reason why you should stay. And that's because Jesus loves his church. He gave his life for the church. He calls the church his very body, his bride, in fact. And with this phenomenon and this trend and what has happened, we are also thinking about that this is a great opportunity That while it may be sad to us, and we've seen many of our friends who have joined this movement called the Great De-Churching, it is also a great opportunity for us as the church. As one extremely wise guru once said, Coach Nick Saban, pressure 
is privilege. And what he means by that, and maybe a little uh, less than nice way, is that to feel pressure, to feel the weight of something is actually a privilege because then it means you're actually doing something worthwhile. If you don't feel any pressure, then you're probably just spinning your wheels and not doing anything that matters a whole lot. So we need to look at this opportunity not so much as something to be afraid of or scared of, but to ask ourselves if so many people are disillusioned or disenfranchised with the church, well, what can we do? What do we need to be listening to the Lord that might be saying to us by his Holy Spirit in this time and place? And so we've been asking this, why church? Why now? And two weeks ago, Pastor Jameson gave us a brilliant sermon called Welcome in a Walled World and an equally brilliant sermon last week called Worship in a Disintegrated World. And today, we're going to look at witness in a despairing world. And with that, let me pray for us, and then we are going to dive in as we reflect on what does it mean to witness in a despairing world. And so, Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would Bless the reading and now the preaching of your word that you would speak to us because yours is the voice that we need to hear above all others, the voice of love. And so does our neighbor. So help us to think through how we might witness to your love, to make your name great, your mercy and your forgiveness and your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, anytime... I preach a sermon that has to do with John the Baptist. I can't help myself but to reference uh, this YouTube video that you can go and find. I've referenced it before, but some of you in here haven't heard it. Uh, this is video called Give Up Your Old Sins. Give Up Your, Y-E-R-A-U-L, Old Sins. And it is just the, this precious, precious video, this animated uh, short film taking the audio of school children in Dublin in the 1960s uh, as they retell Bible stories. And this one, Give Up Your Old Sins, is uh, the telling of the story of John the Baptist by this little Irish girl in school named Mary. And she's talking about how John has been thrown in prison and he sends his disciples to go, as we just read in Matthew 11, to ask Jesus uh, this question, except the way that she retells it she says, his disciples go and they say to Jesus, are you really God or just a shocking holy saint? And every time she says it, I mean, just the way she says it, I mean, I just, I can't, I just laugh and I can't ever get it out of my head. Are you really God or just a shocking holy saint? And so that is what we are looking at today, that John is in prison. And uh, as prophets often find themselves, he's been put in jail for calling out the abuses of power of those in authority. And while in jail, he begins to despair. He begins to doubt. Also common amongst prophets. You know, he begins to think, I've sacrificed so much to call people to see rightly, even when they didn't want to hear it, even though they wouldn't listen. And he begins to ask himself, was it all for nothing? Am I going to die for a lost cause? And so he sends his disciples to John the... Uh, he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, as it says there in verse 3. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Or in the words of the school girl Mary, are you really God, or are you just a shocking holy saint? John is losing his faith. And so Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. 
Go and tell John that the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. He says, go back and tell John what you have seen, what you have heard. Go back and tell him to look at all this embodied evidence in the world. Now, this sermon is titled, Witness in a Despairing World. And whenever we use the word witness or witnessing in church, our thoughts, of course, go towards what does it mean to do evangelism? What is the Christian duty and responsibility to share our faith? with our words and our deeds in order to explain the good news of who Jesus is and who we are as his creatures. But today I want to do something a little bit different. I'm not going to preach a sermon to persuade you of that responsibility. I'm just going to assume, as nervous and frightened of the concept you may or may not be, that you are at least aware that part of the Christian vocation which is true for everyone who call themselves followers of Jesus, is to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to assume that that is given, whether it is or not. I'm also not going to use this sermon to equip you with Christian apologetics, per se. It's just a fancy word for those reasoned uh, arguments to justify that your faith in God is logical and rational. I'm not going to do that today either. There are great resources where you can get all those reasoned arguments for the faith. Tim Keller's Reasons for God. Reason for God is an excellent resource for that. So we're not going to do that today either, though. I'm also not going to preach on the importance of deed ministry and list all of the mercy and compassion ministries that we hope to utilize this facility for someday. If you want to hear that argumentation for how deed ministry, what we do, our deeds of mercy and compassion are important to our witness as the Christian church, I preached a stellar sermon on it last fall. Go find it. All right? We're not going to do any of those things today. Though important and valued, so don't, you know, hear what I'm not saying. Because what I would rather do today is to get at our, I'm going to call it posture. Get at our posture behind our word and deed efforts to witness to a despairing world. Our posture behind those words, our posture behind the things that we do to make the good news of Jesus known to a despairing world. And I'll give you two reasons why I'm going to do that today. In conversations with my unchurched, dechurched, and non-affiliated neighbors, the, the rise of the, the nuns, right? Non-affiliated or have no religious affiliation. In my conversations, I have found that even though they do not see the importance or necessity of church, belonging to church, I mean, most would say like, hey, who's got that kind of money anyway, right? That does not mean they are uninterested in spiritual things, in fact, most of them consider themselves as spiritual, and the stats that quantitate the great de-churching actually back this reality. So the need to give us an evangelism pep talk because our neighbors don't want to talk about this at all is actually not entirely the case or the situation. They, in fact, do often want to talk about spiritual things and are happy to do so. So that's one reason why we're not doing a typical evangelism witness sermons today. The other is that in those same conversations, the apologetics of the faith 
those reasoned arguments as to why believing in Jesus does not make you an unintelligent addict to the opiate of the masses, while very useful, are not enough in and of themselves. At least that is what I'm finding. In my experience, when I use those sort of arguments and rationale, and while they can be useful, most of the time my neighbors say, that makes a lot of sense. That is actually a very well thought out and detailed argument. So what? They just sort of shrug their shoulder. So what? That makes a lot of rational sense, but I'm still not feeling it. It still doesn't feel right to me or make sense. So if our neighbors aren't looking for us, and if our neighbors aren't listening to us as the institution known as the church, how do we recover their trust and their attention? They're interested in their spirituality and their spiritual practices that shape that spirituality, but they don't see the church as the community to pursue that with, to pursue that journey alongside others. And what I would submit to you is that they are looking for a vibe. They're looking for a certain type of posture. And I believe that the church of Jesus always should have had this vibe anyway, or this posture that they're actually looking for. And that vibe or that posture that is, I want to put before you today and offer to you that is behind our efforts of witness to a despairing world, that posture is one that can hold the tension between despair and joy. It's that to be able to hold the tension between despair and joy, grieving and despairing what is lost and broken in this world, while at the same time celebrating with joy all that is good and beautiful and right in our world. Now, it doesn't take much to look around to see that our world is in despair. I don't think I have to convince you of that, especially in the last three years. You just try booking a mental health appointment with a licensed practitioner and you will find out that we are surrounded by a world in despair. We are still enduring an ongoing mental health crisis, especially amongst our children. The CDC and other organizations that track mental health stats show a rise in teens across America stating that their mental health is poor. They feel persistently sad or hopeless. They've had serious thoughts of taking their own lives. Suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst young people. And here's the thing. This is not new since the pandemic. This has been a trend that was already on the rise and happening before the last three years. So when you take into account it is the younger generations making up the majority of the nuns, the non-affiliated with any religious persuasion, that is a chilling, those are chilling parallel tracks. I'm not conflating the two and saying one is because of the other. I'm just saying it's a very dire situation that the two of those things are growing at the same time. Here's the thing. John the Baptist, in our passage today, he sat in prison for doing his job and he is in despair. So the first step and holding this tension between despair and joy is to recognize there is reason for despair. 
Despair, doubt, these are normal reactions to what is going on in our personal lives and in our global lives as humans on this planet. We don't need to feel ashamed that we feel despair. In fact, we are called to hold despair for everything that is worthy of despair. John the Baptist despairs the injustices being done to himself and being done to others, and he reaches out to Jesus for affirmation that all his work and everything that he is doing is not in vain. And Jesus doesn't respond with annoyance or aggravation at John the Baptist's despair. He doesn't say, oh, good grief. You know, I've got a lot of things going on. You know, people are trying to kill me too, you know. Go and tell John to buck up. He doesn't respond that way at all. In fact, he showers John the Baptist with high praise. John's in prison despairing, and he says, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's Jesus' response to John's despair, to John's doubts, to John coming and questioning, Are you the one or just a shocking holy saint? Please tell me that what I'm doing is for, not for nothing. Jesus affirms that from the time of the law and prophets to John the Baptist, now to Jesus, that the work of God in this world has suffered violence, and the violent seek to thwart the work of God by force. Cries of despair and lament of everything broken and wounded in this world are scripted for us in our Bibles. We are commanded to pray them on our lips. Therefore, I offer to you today that a major aspect of what it means to witness to this, this despairing world is to despair along with it, right along with them. We should be lamenting with our children and our neighbor's children their anxieties that they face concerning the world that they are inhabiting, inheriting. We should be grieving the lives being destroyed in the Ukraine and in Gaza. We should be lamenting the destruction of our planet. We should be crying in solidarity with everyone under oppression and violence and injustice wherever it is found. Our Bible teaches us to pray this way. Our Lord did not rebuke John the Baptist when he cried out to him in despair in prison. Our Lord himself wept over the pains of death his friends carried. We are to hold despair. We are to hold our despair and the world's despair faithfully. I think that's the first half of holding these two things in tension to what it means to witness the despairing world. And as challenged as we are with holding a posture of despair, and no one enjoys it, I'm not saying it's easy, but as challenged as we are to hold a posture of despair, I think we actually find it easier in some ways than holding a posture of joy. And we are called to do both. Krista Tippett, who is most, mostly known these days for her podcast On Being, has spent 20 years in radio and in podcasting in conversation with those who she calls wise and gracious lives. And she gave a TED Talk where she talked about these three arts, these three arts of wisdom or these three practices of living that persistently show up 
and conversations with these people over the 20 years that she has been doing this. And one of them, she says, is to see the generative story, to see the generative narratives of our time. And this is what she says about that. She says, we are very fluent in and very familiar with the narrative of catastrophe, dysfunction, disarray. And that is real, but it is not the whole story of us. There are abundant realities of things going right at any given time. Learning and growth that are happening, stories of evolution and breakthrough. What she is getting at, and science backs this up, is that we are unfortunately hardwired to fixate on what is going wrong and what will go wrong. And we know this from experience. You will tell twice as many people about a bad customer service experience as you will tell about a good one. And if someone displays joyfulness in our midst, if someone seems to be exuding a joyful attitude, we are often suspicious of them. What do they know that I don't know? Perhaps they are just uneducated or of low intelligence because no one should be that joyful. Does it ring true? I think sometimes it does. We have to make much more of an effort and a conscious decision if we want to pay attention to all that is good and redemptive in our work, in others' work, in the world around us. John the Baptist despairs. Jesus points John to all that he is doing in the world that is good and redemptive. He says, listen, look, see. Yes, your despair is real. But see all these things that are going on around you. Krista Tippett goes on to say this. She says, just look around. All kinds of people are standing before a world in pain, working with forms that are broken, working in institutions that don't make as much sense anymore, becoming healers and creatives in so many forms. Friends, if anyone should be able to see and encourage the telling of the generative story of our species, it should be us. It should be the church of Jesus. If anyone should be able to celebrate and participate in all the signs of God's kingdom that are already here and the ones that will be coming, it should be the church of Jesus. We should be leading the way and witnessing to this posture of life because God clearly cares about this world he created. He didn't just make a few stars and a few small hills and a puddle of water and three animals and say, ah, that'll have to do. The vast interconnected wonder in all this universe is enough to prove that this world is a delight and expression of his love. This is why Jesus' first miracle is turning water into very expensive wine. It's why when he fed the hungry, he didn't just feed them a little bit. He fed them in overabundance. This is why when John the Baptist asked him for a reason that he can hold joy along with his despairs, Jesus says, look, I am running towards the brokenness, not away from it, and I am making all things new. Look around. 
and celebrate all the ways that God's kingdom is already at work now and making a difference and celebrate it with joy. Friends, I hope that the church of Jesus and the secular West can be honest about how we have arrived at this present moment without despairing and throwing in the towel on the church also. I want to see the people of God, I want to see us become a people of contented joy and peace and openness who witness to the beauty and the presence of God all around us every day because I think that's what gets our neighbor's attention. When they look at us and they wonder, why are they not freaking out about everything that is wrong in the world while at the same time they can grieve its loss? When they look at us and wonder, why are they not yelling and screaming and shouting that it's everyone else's fault for why things are so messed up? Why, when they look at us and they wonder, why are we willing to be honest about how we ourselves have participated in what is wrong in our world while at the same time calling attention to where wrongs need to be made right? How is it that they can hold all these things in tension, the good and the bad, the light and the dark, without needing to transmit their pain onto other people, but rather allow it to transform themselves? People who actually grieve, but do not grieve like those who have no hope. People of joy. Not happy, clappy, everything is fine, denial, like nothing's wrong. But joy that is that buoyancy of faith that says, you may push my head under the water, I will always pop right back up above the surface. Because, friends, I think the folks who can hold these tensions are the ones who are following Jesus. And the ones that our neighbors notice are actually different than everyone else around them. I believe that this is what the scriptures speak of when they say always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. This is the posture of our witness. May it be so. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.